Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of our podcast. Today's conversation is with a gentleman by the name of Dr. Marshall Watson. Dr. Watson is an Aboriginal man and descendant of the Noongar people of the southwest of Western Australia. Working as a child and adolescent forensic psychiatrist in South Australia, he is the clinical lead of the Forensic Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service. Adolescence represents a time of significant physical, psychological and cognitive change for young people. With this is a time of potential vulnerability for the development of mental health issues in the context of young people's lives. So tune in today as Dr. Watson and I delve into the impact of Indigenous and non-Indigenous practitioners being clinically and culturally aware of issues relating to developmental trauma in Indigenous adolescents and how to manage them appropriately whilst preserving self-care. All right, Marshall, uh, thanks very much for coming to the show uh, and I appreciate your time uh, and effort uh, for coming here to the conference and, uh, and what a great presentation. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Oh, I appreciate it. Um, so, Marshall, if you just want to tell us a little bit about your background, um, how you got to where you're in right now, yeah. the role you're in. Okay, so um, I'm a Noongar man, so I'm from the southwest of WA. I'm a child and adolescent forensic psychiatrist, and I currently live and work in South Australia. Um, um, apart from being a psychiatrist, I'm a husband and a dad and a brother and all of those things. I've oh, got wow. three beautiful kids. And um, so how I came to be, I, you know, I, I guess I grew up not really knowing much about my own Indigenous identity, and that came to me later in life, and I was had the opportunity to be able to go on an after school, finishing high school, then going on to university to study medicine. And then initially um, was very adamant I was going to be a surgeon and started surgical training. And then life courses change and yeah. changed into psychiatry and then decided that I liked working with children and young people in complex situations and ended up somehow in adolescent forensic psychiatry. So, yeah. And so you did your... Uh you did all your tertiary education in South Australia? No, no, I'm from WA originally. So okay, I did so my, I, I, you know, I grew up in a rural, t- I went to high school in a rural town called Caratha. I was there for five years and came down, moved down to Perth and did my medical degree, degree at University of Western Australia and then sort of split my psychiatry training between South Australia and Western Australia and eventually came back to South Australia a few years ago. Well, that's really interesting. Tell me what it was like growing up in Caratha. I mean, we I was there in July and uh, I mean, it seems to change a lot since. Oh, I haven't been to Caratha now in a good few decades, but from what I understand, it's very different. But um, oh, I, I clearly remember living in Perth and then 
finding out we're going to move to Caratha and then being, getting off the plane and it felt like it was someone throwing a hot blanket over me. It was just so muggy. It was in, sort of in the wet season, the cyclone season. Um, I've got really fond memories of Caratha. I thought in I mean, in hindsight, it was a great place to live. It was a rural area. It certainly wasn't. It was before the boom and it was a very different town then. Yeah. But, um, you know, it, uh, I, I, you know you, you, there's a lot of good stuff on your doorstep. There's a dampy archipelago. There's a lot of camping and mm. all of that sort of stuff and fun stuff to do. So great national parks. So yeah. yeah. And do you get um, do you get much time to go back to where you're from or down? Yeah. Look, we go. We've made a commitment that we go back to WA once a year um, just to catch up with the family because that's where my family is yeah. still over there, and we will go back about once a year so the kids can sort of catch up with the grandparents, and the aunts and uncles, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Good. And so how did you get your interest in specifically with children in, in as it relates to psychiatry? Um, I think I, when I was doing my psychiatry training, I, well, I mean, I'd always had an interest in working with kids, whatever I was, I was going to do. But I think going through my psychiatry training, what I really enjoyed, and I think it was the one that just resonated with me, is that young kids or well, Indigenous people were storytellers. Mm. We tell kids that see their lives through a story. And young people's lives um, occur in context. So it wasn't just about listening to the stories, but also understanding, you know, what goes on for young people and then how things go well, but how things don't actually go well. But it's also, from my perspective, a chance just to work with young people, work with families, intervene early and hopefully make some change as well. And, and being an Indigenous man, obviously, yep. it's, it's quite um, it's something you're very passionate about, obviously. Yeah. And something that deserves a lot of attention. Absolutely. Look, I think we, I think we've come a long way in further understandings of, well, firstly, the social determinants of health, but also mental health, but also looking at, um, we all know the problems that indige- we face, that Indigenous people face with their social and emotional well-being. Um, and we need to stop, I think, looking at the problems and start looking at the solutions. And I think we're actually doing that, but also looking at where cultural practices and cultural knowledge um, and in cultural intelligence comes into play in working, not only with children, but also adolescents, families, and, and anyone with sort of mental health mm. issues as well. And what we know that culture actually enhances clinical practice. Mm. And, and I mean, you mentioned cult- culture and cultural practice and understanding. How... How important, how do you feel like we're going with that so far and and how far do you think we still have to go? Look, I think historic, I mean, maybe the, the, I think there's, the, there's a few layers to that. Firstly, um, I think we've moved beyond being culturally aware through to cultural competence and then we, as the sort of being practitioners and working in that area for non-Indigenous people, we also have started to move into the sphere and to the realm, I think, of looking at cultural knowledge, but also cultural intelligence, but also incorporating that as well. The issue is that sometimes we still are based in a Western biomedical and biomedical paradigm, which works to a degree, but um, you can't work with Indigenous people and not have cultural practice as part of what you're doing and using cultural knowledge as well. Now, as with anything, it has to be the right knowledge the relevant knowledge at the right time. So um, as much as culture is important and it's relevant and in incorporating that into clinical practice, it has to be done in the right way as well. And, and it has to be done by the right people as well. So, Yeah, and, and you mentioned 
uh, how relational Indigenous communities are and, and um, how they respond and how, you, mm. how they communicate. I mean, tell us the importance about the relationship side of things. Yeah. I mean, the relationship is, is, is fundamentally important because Indigenous people, look, they're not just, you know, they're, they're connected through very complex family and kinship structures, which are very traditionally very well, very well buffered. And it wasn't, it's not just about the family being supported, but that also defines sort of laws, responsibilities, kinship structures, who could marry who, so forth and mm. so on. So there's, there's that part of it. Um, but it's also that relational aspect to the land and country and so forth. And it is a very dynamic and organic and very fluid thing, but also connectedness and relational, being relational spiritually as well. Um, all of those things have been, you know, somewhat have been eroded to various degrees with colonization and the effects of that but they're also the part of the solution as well a lot as as well as much as a lot of that stuff has been impacted it's also the stuff we need to draw on to bring things sort of back into play um, and to help work through things as well and that can happen i mean not it's not as though it's all been lost it just has to be re sort of i guess sort of um not so much rediscovered but um people need to be in a position to be able to do that and but not just people but also um, communities, um, but also service providers, healthcare mm. providers, so forth and so on. Yeah, no, it's a crucial part of it, and it's a good distinction you made in your presentation. But t tell us the, the challenge that we have as it relates to, to children and childhood trauma uh, in Indigenous communities, uh, undiagnosed, misdiagnosed, or mistreated. Mm -hmm. uh, is that that's that's what you would say is the challenge? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think with. With young people, I, look, I think if we look at the the understandings of childhood trauma, it's certainly there's a lot of research done on childhood trauma. We know that it happens for Indigenous kids. But I think historically, um, a lot of these young people with very complex behaviours have been as seen as too hard or they've been seen as things that have sort of fit into a box of something else. Um, but if you take the behaviour at face value, you actually miss the underlying picture. So it comes back to what's you know context and development so whatever what's contextually going on for this young person because um if you don't get the context right you don't get the circumstances right you don't get the story right and that's where things go wrong yeah um and young people and i don't you know if we take adhd as an example a lot of kids got have that as a diagnosis i'm not disputing it as a diagnosis it certainly is out there but if it's not being seen for something such as complex trauma with externalizing behaviors then you're going to be treating it the wrong way you're not actually going to help the person so yeah and a lot of these things certainly a lot of the time it isn't as though one occurs independent of the other there's a whole confluence so it's about picking it out and watching things over time but also intervening at the same time yeah and and tell us about the the developmental uh trauma tell yeah. us about that so developmental trauma is basically traumatic events that occur during the developmental uh, the formative years for whether it be and it can be certainly infants can be affected children can be affected and so can adolescents and it's sort of an interpersonal nature so it's between people and that can be physical it can be sexual it can be emotional it can be neglect the issue is that whatever that whatever it occurs that there's a relational bond that's ruptured and then that perpetuates things such as fear, uncertainty, inconsistency. Young people get quite anxious and distressed. Mm. No one likes to feel like that. And then they develop these sort of maladaptive strategies such as they might become aggressive, violent, they may self-harm or misuse drugs. 
all of those behaviours are communication and all of those behaviours they're doing to try and not feel so awful. Um, mm. But the thing about one of those, the, the developmental trauma, is it's not just a one-off. It's recurrent traumas where the previous, so it's subsequent trauma where the previous trauma hasn't had a chance to heal or recover, recover from, and then it becomes cumulative. Mm. And the effect of that is if people are so busy being stuck in their trauma, how do they actually go on and develop through their life stages when they haven't been able to process things? So that's where it gets really quite tricky. Yeah, and even and even adults, they trace a lot of their, yeah. um, a lot of their mental health challenges uh, back to the early years of... Oh, absolutely. We see a lot of the effect. I mean, if we look at adults now, we look sort of backwards when you look in their own childhood histories, there's inevitably going to be a history of trauma. Now, whether that be depression, anxiety, substance misuse, or people diagnosed with a personality disorder, you will generally find there's something that may have happened, particularly with Indigenous Australians. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so you're currently in the role now where you're, you're treating um treating ch- children and uh, yep. adolescents is that correct yep uh in south australia yep that's right and how have you seen it over the because you've only been practicing now for about 15 uh i've been a doctor for well well close to 20 years but a practicing a consultant psychiatrist for the last six okay and i think the <clears throat> what we found is that i'll talk specifically around young people because i work yeah. with adolescents who are in, in custody is that there are a few things you you have the smaller cohort of young people that have a functional link or a direct link between their mental health and their offending, but also young people who have mental health issues who are in custody. Now, they're the bigger sort of portion, and a lot of these young people have developmental trauma. And because they have issues of, well, one part of it is they don't trust anyone and there's relational mistrust, is that sometimes a lot of these young people with all these complexities attract a lot of services, which is well-intended, and necessary, but it needs to be scaffolded and done in the right way. So the way that I think in part of it approaching is to have a less is more approach of where you actually put a few key people working directly with the young people and then scaffold your services around to support those clinicians and then gradually add in things as they need to happen. That's a very, because what you're trying to do is build relational mistrust. None of these kids mm-hmm. need medication. Medication is the exception rather than the rule. They need a lot of work in sort of, relational ability scaffolding emotional regulation and so forth yeah and so you're saying to have a few key people rather than many uh, to then form the relational yep uh connection with them to that's right obviously then introduce further people later absolutely and i speak we're talking for an with indigenous people particularly you know there's going to be the clinical and it's going to work you need to have a clinical and a cultural approach and each of those need to be side by side not one is more important than the other but one is going to be a bit more of a priority at times yeah. around the other so if a young person is say suicidal they might need a clinical need but they need to be culturally scaffolded as well and it's vice versa if there's a young person who's dealing with cultural issues but there's and there's some potential risk issues and they need to be clinically supported and it is around both of those worldviews working with each other not at the in context, not in as a contest, but mutually exclusive and sort of working with each other. And dealing in the corrective services side of things, I mean, yep. do, are you seeing that there's there's still a lot of work to be done uh, yep. in order to help um, uh, help better manage, but then also to then reintroduce them back into 
uh, mainstream society where they're not going to reoffend and yep. they end up back in there. I mean, how do you think we're going, number one, and number two, what do you think we can do? Look, I think we're better than we were because I think we know a lot more, not only about... We know that young Indigenous people are overrepresented in custody, males more so than females. Um, the issue that we're finding is, and I think that whilst we have mental health services in custody, it's about what cultural services we have in custody. And generally, look, by and large, young people in custody get very good medical care. Um, it differs between state to state about what cultural care that they get. But the, the more important thing is about when they leave custody and that period of where they've just left custody, where they're at increased risk because they're from they're going from an environment where they're getting healthcare, meals, secure, safe environment, and it's predictable. And I'm not saying that kids need to be in custody for that, but it's about when they go back into the community, what are we actually doing around their substance misuse? What are we doing around their mental health needs? What are we doing around, you know, family sort of systems issues? And I think we need to take a bit of a different approach in that um, we need to sort of change the parameters of what we will and what we won't sort of work with. And I mean, from my point of view, any Indigenous kids should get a Guernsey because they're all predominantly high risk anyway. Mm. So it is, I guess what I'm getting at is that, you know, what it needs to be is good care in custody and good through care and post-release care once they're out of custody as well. But then also then working with the young person, but also with families and communities as well. So, Yeah, and that follow-up care. I mean, how important is that? Well, it's incredibly important, and you need, and and I think that sort of care needs to be outreach, um, consistent. Um, it needs to certainly be where you've got clinical issues. Then cultural support needs to be there and engagement because that's what's going to make young Indigenous kids feel safe. But also making sure that any cult, where there are cultural issues being dealt with, there's a clinical need arises, that sort of happens as well. So it's about following that person on their journey out. That's what it needs to actually happen. But also working with them and families. But you're also then working also inevitably with young people in out-of-home care. Mm. Um, so, you, you know, whether that be child protection or then it, if they're young people before ongoing matters for the court. So it's about working with young people and really acting as a bit of a, from culturally in a way, you're acting as a cultural broker to advocate yeah. for the needs of these young people. And are you seeing uh, many people put in these services from like remote areas? Are you seeing like the, I mean, in what you do, mm. have you had the opportunity to go out to, you know, remote areas and indigenous communities yep. and obviously you're from one, but yep. uh, to see what's going on there and the challenges there? Yep. Look, I think with rural or remote communities, it's a, it's a it's a different. There are other challenges, and um, young people coming into custody only occurs if something's happened for which they've actually been charged and ended up in court. So, yeah. if and I think there we need to be sort of mindful of. If, um, certainly, we do some, see young people from communities, and when they do come down from communities, there are other challenges because they're also they're also they're not physically dislocated. They're also can be culturally dislocated, and then they also need much. They also need that cultural support and continuity whilst they're in custody as well, because the thing is they're coming from very different environments to a very a very you know custodial environment, mm. which can in some ways um, make things a little bit worse, particularly if they're emotionally dysregulated. And they don't have access to the normal coping strategies that they might do, whether that be substances or whatever, which I'm not condoning, but it's just about you take their sort of way of coping away, it makes them trickier to deal with. But we also 
and we also see that and we put those supports in place. Yeah. And so do you get to go out to and these rural and remote communities at any chance and, and see the communities? And um, In my previous role within CAMS, I did. I used to be the consult, one of the consultant psychiatrists for the APY lands, yeah. which I would go up once a term, and that would be a week-long visit. And so, yes, certainly seen young people in communities and done all the work and working with people out there. And it is a different way of working, which, yeah. I, I, which I quite enjoy. <laughs> was it a good experience? Yeah, it was a fantastic experience yeah. because you actually sort of see people in their homes, in their schools, in their communities. You yeah, see how they actually really do function. And you also sort of see the level of disadvantage that they're living in as well um, and how they actually function in all of that, which is very, it's not surprising that they struggle when they come into places like the city or into custody because it's a different environment. Yeah. Yeah, so do you see um, the developmental side of things as far as trauma and, and mental health challenges to be quite different in, in those contexts where you see the rural and remote uh, communities versus you know coming to yeah. Adelaide? And Look, it's an interesting question because I don't think it's just a matter of urban versus rural. I think also different, you know, rural areas, there's rural, there's regional, and then there's remote. And I think each of those have got their own set of challenges. One, because of the levels, I mean, if the, the trauma's there, it's about what actually is locally available and coordinated from a service perspective, but also what are the strengths of the families or the deficits of the families to be able to or not be able to deal with this. The other issue in all of this is if, you know, issues of substance misuse are going on or there's other problematic behaviours or behaviours are normalised in certain communities, not that it's condoned, but I mean, so I think that um, mm. certainly the developmental trauma is, it, it is in metro, it is in rural, it is in remote areas, um, but you sort of see it through different lenses in yeah. different levels of severity, I think, and impact. So, but the underlying core, the underlying underlying approach to it is the same but it really comes down to what you have locally available to actually do that yeah and how important is that early uh, well, the identification but also the early uh, intervention uh, for children and young people well i think it's really important because the earlier you intervene the earlier you can sort of have a response and that's not that's always it's always always it's easier said than done yeah um, but in part of that is working with young people is also working with their families to enhance their capacity as well. So you want to be working with young people to improve resilience and enhance their capacity, but also families as well and helping families linking in with local services and so forth. Yeah. Um, um, like I said, it, it varies between various different sort of areas how we do it. And I guess this is um, my understanding of some of the issues that have been spoken in the last few days is about the challenges that are faced in local, in rural areas, but how we actually approach and how we maybe think a little bit differently about how we do it as well. Mm. No, 100%, that's a good point. Is, is stigma a challenge in Indigenous communities? Well, I think stigma is a challenge, but, oh, certainly, no, stigma is a, is a challenge, but I think the bigger issue, and I think that it's somewhat under, under sort of mentioned a lot, not, not as mentioned as much rather, is this issue of shame. Yeah, because certainly, you know, um, and shame is an incredibly powerful thing for Indigenous Australians, probably more so, probably what we probably would call stigma in some regards, mm. because there's the shame of what they feel. They don't actually understand what's going on in their own head around that, whether that be they've done something wrong, something wrong's happened to them, they've been labelled with something, they've been, di they've been sort of seen in a certain way or they've done something that's really, really bad and they feel bad about. But it's then 
what they actually feel from that, but also then the response of others, like whether it be teasing, taunting, putting them down, that sort of amplifies it. So I think that issue of shame for Indigenous people is an incredibly powerful thing that is somewhat hard to sort of pin down and describe. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, absolutely yeah. stigma is one, but I would I'd probably say that shame is also up there as well. Yeah. And is there, moving forward with that then, is there a way to to help with that or is it something we've just got to be mindful of so that when we're... Well, I think that within any emotional state in a young person, it's about, I think when it, yeah, with any emotional state in a young person, they always can't name it and identify it. And it's helping young people make sense of what doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, to actually act as the interpreter because with understanding and giving people another perspective, they kind of go, oh, right, that makes sense. Right, so how do I sort of deal with it as well? But it's also not just doing that with young people, it's doing it with families as well mm. um, because the fam- this issue of stigma and shame isn't yeah. just, it sits with families as well. So on that point then, I mean, how important is it then to get the families involved with this? Oh, it's incredibly important to get the families involved and as much as we're working with young people, a lot of the time, a lot of the work um, also has to happen with families as well because, you know, let's take rural and remote, let's take a remote place, for example, where, you know, clinicians may be sort of visiting every so often. You've got to empower the families to actually deal with some of this stuff as well. Yeah. Because they're the ones that are going to be doing a lot of the work in between what the clinicians are doing as well. And a lot of that stuff is deemed, I think, part of not just also helping people understand what's going on inside their own head emotionally and, and, Whatever and whatever else, it's also um, helping them to sort of, I, I guess, make meaning of it, but also um, demystify it. Mm. Because this is the thing. I think. I think a lot of things get talked about and spoken about. People don't kind of don't know what it means. So there's all of that sort of stuff that comes with it as well. So that's why you know the knowledge is power, and it's yeah. not about. And it's about, you know, um, actually enhancing people's and families' capacities to deal with this stuff. Mm. And obviously shining a light on uh, on so, so clinicians uh, mm. to be able to actually notice the difference and to, to be able to actually say, well, hang on, you've got to actually, to, to actually understand Indigenous people a lot better yeah. culturally so that, that way they'll engage with them a lot better and, and probably improve their chances yeah. of being more effective in their in their interaction, is that what you'd say? Yeah, absolutely. And that happens in various ways. Look, and we can sit here and we can talk about certainly things such as cultural awareness, competency, all those sort of things still hold true. But as a non-Indigenous clinician, sometimes the best thing to do is actually just go and sit and observe and watch and learn, whether that be working with Indigenous families, um, NGOs, community-controlled health organisations, and just to observe process. Mm Because sometimes I think when you come in with a non-Indigenous process of coming in, I'm the doctor, we're going to talk for X amount of time, this is what I think is going on, do this, this yeah. and this, that's a, well, that's a very non-Indigenous way of doing it. Um, but going in and just sort of look, just um, being seen and listening and being visible, that's when people will start to kind of go, right, now I'll open up to you a little bit more, I can yeah. trust you a little bit. And that comes from... That a clinician, clinician, and you know, service providers being present and visible. Mm-hmm. The other part of that is um, 
it allows other Indigenous workers to suss them out and vouch for them as well. Um, and once you've got that sorted out, then it makes engagement a lot easier and it makes your assessment a lot easier. You're going to get a much, and that helps you with treatment and intervention. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned at the start social determinants. Yep. Uh, I mean, how, how important uh, is this uh, in regards to providing the right access, uh, the right care for the people who need it? Oh, it's incredibly important. I mean, young you know, people need to have... <clears throat> Look, there are people out there that don't have access to the basic things that a lot, a lot of other people do, um, particularly in Indigenous communities where, you know, issues such as, well, you know, overcrowding, lack mm. of adequate food, mm. lack of, you know, lack of schooling, all of these sort of things. So, that, I mean, these are all incredibly basic and fundamental things that are really, really important. Um, and whilst that's the case, um, the the priority that people are going to face place on different things is going to be different at very different points in time but overall what we're wanting to do i mean is improve someone's social and emotional well-being and so that's about looking at things not just mental health but also socially culturally um spiritually also within the family those sorts of things yeah yep and do you feel like the access that we have and and with digital health i mean because Indigenous people obviously wouldn't be, um, would it be as effective with the digital health options out there as opposed to the face-to-face? -face? For rural and remote communities, how are we going with providing the mm. access to this sort of education and awareness? Yeah, I think there's a couple of layers to that. I mean, Indigenous people, we're relational, we like the face-to-face -face and sitting mm. there and talking. Younger generation are pretty apt, pretty savvy with tech and using their phones and you know that that sort of thing. Um, I think where possible, it's best to have face to face because I think that helps create that sort of that therapeutic relationship. And I certainly do feel that there is, having having done a bit of it, is certainly the use of sort of things like telehealth and is actually a very useful thing because it does improve access to care for people that don't actually, can't actually get to places as yeah. well. But I think we also need to be aware of what we're using telehealth for, that it is, whilst it's useful, it does have its limitations and nothing's really gonna, and nothing is really good as having local on the ground face-to-face -face stuff. Now, the other part of that is we're not gonna have psychiatrists and psychologists in every town. That's where telehealth is actually quite useful, I think. But in anything that you do with sort of telehealth, it's also making sure that you, not just checking in with the young person or the person, but also their care, local care team as well. So it's not just that one, it's not just through that, it's also, it's I, what I'm getting at is that digital health needs to augment the stuff that happens on the ground as well. Yeah. And vice versa. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that, that makes sense. So, tell me about um, the self-care. Yeah. So, because you, you, you mentioned a bit about that in your presentation, you mm. just want to elaborate a bit more on... Yeah, look, let's let's not kid ourselves. Um, working in Indigenous mental health with young people and with people who are traumatised is really, really challenging. Um, it's challenging for Indigenous people because they keep on living it. It's hard to talk about. We're getting asking our clients and people that we work with to talk about hard stories, wrong way stories, and stuff that doesn't actually make sense. We're asking, you know, we're getting our Indigenous 
health work. So there's the, they need to be looking after them. So we need to be helping them to look after themselves and using family in that regard. With our Indigenous cultural consultants and healthcare workers, inevitably they've come from a history where there's probably been some trauma in their own family. So when they're working with people, they may get triggered. We need to support them in how they do that. And that needs to be at the local level. They need, but also within the service level, I think as services, we're accountable to their to that and we need to be doing that but also you know for non-indigenous people they have really struggled with working with indigenous people because of the severity of illness but also this sort of sense of helplessness that they're seeing now i don't think that i understand where the sense of helplessness comes from and yes it is a real thing but it's also reflective of the gravity and the burden of illness and complexity of illness that we're seeing so absolutely self-care is important and that is about people think, doing things either culturally, clinically, or just with their own sort of social and emotional well-being. Mm. Um, and certainly, whilst we want to be using indigenous, you know, the use of cultural consultants and mental health workers, indigenous mental health workers is imperative. Um, we sometimes ask a lot of the people when there really aren't that many of them. So. My basic rule of thumb is that, you know, for any service, you have to have at least two people. Um, and that and that should always be in a pair because they've got someone to support themselves. Having one person isn't enough, yeah. you know. The other part of the, all of this, and I don't have the answer to it, is just to be aware of, is that working with, you know, Indigenous mental health workers and Indigenous practitioners, they might be, you know, in the community, they're auntie or uncle. At the workplace, they're... The, counsellor but they're always going to be auntie or uncle mm. whether that be in the clinic or in the community and they are going to get pressures put on them in community after hours that sort of stuff as well so we've got to learn how to figure out we've got to be mindful how we manage that sort of thing yeah yeah no, that's uh i mean that's that's fair enough and i think i that really resonates i, I guess the Something um, another person mentioned in rural and remote communities was the lack of consistency, you know, mm. in, in in the care. Yep. So having to you know get someone different that keeps coming out mm. as well, and the frustrations that go with that, because yep. like you said, they build rapport and they build yep. relationships with someone, then all of a sudden, someone else is coming along and they're starting yep. from scratch again. Yeah, uh, it's a big question, and look, a part of that is about. Unfortunately, what tends to happen in rural areas that is what in my experience anyway is that with it's generally whether whatever service it is, it's the young grad fresh out of uni that ends up in the, in the placement yeah. and they're there for the right reasons, but it's a, um, are they actually adequately prepared for what they're coming into because their job generally isn't within the nine to five because they end up being community members and seeing a lot of this other stuff. That's one part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they inevitably, inevitably leave for their own reasons, whether partners, families or whatever. Look, it's incredibly important to have that consistency um, as much as possible. Um, But even if you can't do that, it is about having a few different people where if one person does leave, they can transition to the left. Yeah. So transition to the next. Um, But that's sometimes easier said than actually done. Yeah. It's not easy. But, you know, the other part of that is about, well, when we do get people into rural and remote areas, it's about, Yes, you can engage them. Yes, you can recruit them. But how are you going to retain them? How are you going to invest in them? You can only do so much because young people are going to go off and start their own families and have their own children and want to do other things as well. But whilst they're there, you just want to make sure that they're supported. Yeah. Do you see an opportunity for the peer workforce playing a role 
in those communities? Do you feel like um, there's an opportunity with Indigenous peer workforce or peer leaders or whatever? They yeah, I think that, I think, you know, having Indigenous people working in community in areas such as mental health, is, it, it does a lot of things. One, it's an employment. Two, it's younger people sort of seeing that they can um, go on and do other things that aren't your uncle or mum or dad is actually doing something for community that is really useful. And I think that sort of builds resilience and pride and all of that sort of thing. Um, um, and I think young you know, people being visible in community, trying to do the right thing for community and reinvesting in community is a positive thing. The other side of that is sometimes that these people get um, inundated with requests and a lot of stuff asked of them. Asked of them. Mm. So in order, if we're going to have Indigenous people working in community, it's about making sure that they're supported in doing that. Um, and also making sure that we can retain them as well. Yeah. What, hold, what, what does the future hold for you? What, where are you, um, what are you up to and where, do you, where are you planning on heading or what's oh, going on? Very, very good question. No, no, I, my, I, I've been a consultant for several years now and I'm, a, I'm very lucky to have the job that I'm in and the position that I'm in and the people that I work with. I'll continue to keep doing what I'm doing with working with Indigenous mental health and young people in custody um, and thinking more about supporting. I, I think for my, I mean, I'll continue to do the stuff that I've been doing, but more thinking about leadership and management and supporting the workforce we've got, particularly the cultural people we've got and also the clinicians as well. Um, and just keep really advocating for you know, the rights of young people, well, rights and good care for young people who are in custody and coming out of custody and also kids in out-of-home care as well. But, um, yeah, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> so. It's such a it's such an important role and clearly a, a very proud Indigenous man and, and the work you're doing is truly inspirational. Uh, has there been someone that's been inspiring you through this journey? Is there, has there been a couple of people? Oh, look, there's, there, there's been a couple of people and, um, you know, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, I guess there's various people along the way. There have been some great mentors along the way and people like sort of Helen Milroy and Ernest Hunter and yeah. Tom Brideson and people yeah. like that who I've yeah. sort of looked up to over the years and sort of been guided along by. And, you know, people like Ross Calusi um, who kind of got me into psychiatry in the first place. But yeah. um, I guess I went into psychiatry somewhat reluctantly initially but uh, I've just grown into it and I've, I, I just continue to enjoy what I do and continue to try and grow with it, let that grow. Yeah. What do you like to do for fun? Um, well, my 13-year-old son has just gotten me into, downhill, into mountain bike riding, so that's what we do a bit of, but also um, spending time with, you know, the kids keep me busy. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> um, and certainly, you know, at, at my age, trying to get a bit, little bit more exercise and a little, yeah, you know, and you know, make some more healthy lifestyle choices in that regard. But no, I'm an outdoors person. I, I yeah. much prefer being outdoors than indoors, and um, anything that involves a family is always you know, something that's good for me. So yeah. yeah, well, you live in a beautiful part of Australia. Oh, I, I continue to think that Adelaide's the centre of the universe. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, it? oh, it's a great spot. I mean, we've got so much fantastic stuff on our doorstep here that people just don't realise. Yeah. So it's very flat. Everything's really close. That's fine. It works. Uh, what's the last sort of words you want to, want to say in closing? 
Look, I think it would be despite the challenges that we face working with Indigenous people, I do think that there is hope and I think that the narrative and the landscape, well, I think there's a couple of things. One, we're understanding the narrative better. We need to be working more cult using our cultural knowledge base um, and also enhancing our workforce, but also really supporting the non-Indigenous people who do the work that they do to, to, to help with our people. Um, I do think that there is a, you know, I like to think that things are getting better um, and I do think that um, anyone that's interested in working in the space of mental health, for me, I find it an incredibly rewarding career as an Aboriginal person because, you know, fundamentally I'm a storyteller and I get to work with people who tell their stories and help make sense of that and that for me that just sort of ticks a lot, lots of boxes. But if you are going to work in mental health, I think it is really about um, remembering that the people that we work with come to us with really hard stories. It's an absolute privilege to hear what they have to say and it's very privileged information. Um, and the way that we work through help the people do that is being is continually continuing to be respectful, um, acknowledge that their, so their stories are sacred and also be curious. Um, you need to have a continuous sense of curiosity doing this job to help people sort of work through things, but also for yourself as well. And also, you know, keeping yourself in check. Mm. That's not, I mean, burnout's a thing across a lot of medical, a lot of sort of health, particularly in rural and remote areas. Um, and it's about keeping in check with yourself, but also looking out for yourself as well. It's just as important because you can't do the job unless if you're feeling burnt out yourself. And where, Marshall, where can people go to get in touch with you? Um, people can either um, get in touch with me generally through the College of Psychiatrists website if they want further information about things or um, generally through uh, forensic cams in South Australia um, through SA Health, which they can find on the, on the health, SA Health web, on the CAMS website. Yep. yep. Perfect. Well, I appreciate the time. Thanks very much for your leadership uh, in the role that you're doing. And... Uh, it is truly inspirational and it's uh, very fascinating the work you're doing. So I appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. Thanks for the time to chat. Yeah. Cheers. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.